You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, whtt.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we've got, a, I think, a very provocative message that Chuck is going to be talking about. It's the secret message of Jesus. And that sounds very intriguing, Chuck. Thank you, Tom. This is a book by Brian D. McLaren. It's out of print. And I came upon it because one of the elders in my church came to me and said to me words to the effect that I think our churches have turned their backs on modern events of peace and war, or words to that effect. And he handed me this book and asked me if I would look at it. And so I want to just spend a few minutes explaining what's in the book. And this is on our website under the title of the book, The Secret Message of Jesus. I found Jesus' secret message in an out-of-print book by Brian D. McLaren. McLaren concludes, those who are committed begin a new life's work on earth, our first mission field. Many never recognize this calling and die without finding it. If this is true, those of us who are waiting for heaven to envelop us are missing out on Jesus' not-so-secret plan for us. I can say that I certainly missed it for a long time, especially in the years when I was a nominal evangelical under the influence of dispensational believers. I would like to take back some of my acts and statements from those days. This book seems to redefine life missions, stating, quote, the secret purpose of Jesus isn't primarily about heaven after you die. It doesn't give us an exit escape hatch from the world. Rather, it thrusts us back into the here and now so we can be part of God's dream for planet Earth. That's on page 183 of Mr. McLaren's book. I add, do so in spite of the incredible evil we see all around us. My effort and our organization, We Hold These Truths, have focused on the apparent evils of one nation that is more powerful than all the rest and has been in endless wars and or scheming for combat for most of my life. Our once noble nation blames these killing conflicts on the lesser powers. Those people then become the victims of the next war. The underlying purpose of each war is economic, as we explained. We are fighting to keep the economy boiling. We are fighting because our leaders want to keep the economy boiling. We also point out that churches have a responsibility to oppose social evils with at least as much vigor as we oppose starvation after a natural disaster in some faraway place. As my friend who loaned me the secret missions of Jesus put it, most evangelical churches seem to have missed the point. They teach that the purpose of our earthly kingdom 
is to make a salvation commitment to take care of our afterlife. The full extent of many church mission work is a natural outreach to help financially needy. Meanwhile, wars and threats of wars go on, unchecked and unreported by our churches. Our political leaders blame these serial wars on, quote, hostile, and quote, little states, who they vilify to keep our church leaders quiet. Worse yet, our churches fail to even pray for world peace. Why not? Because to pray for peace is to recognize war. It is clear logic that when churches fail to pray for peace, they are endorsing the warring system, knowingly or not knowingly. How much more logical that Jesus is calling us to make our mission while we are here among the living, rather than waiting to domicile us with the dead. Have we found something in Scripture that rules out this thinking? Or is this what traditional Christianity was and always has been? Thank you for that, Chuck. We have seen that evangelicals tend to ignore this issue of peace. And a good example is Dr. Robert Jeffress. He's the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas. And it's quite telling in an article that he wrote on May 1st, just a few days ago. It's entitled, Robert Jeffress, America Has Forgotten God, The Best Hope is Prayer. And this is from Fox News, and this is an opinion piece, and we'll have a link to it. But down here in the article, he refers to James 5, verse 16, says that the prayer of a righteous person releases God's power. And that verse actually says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But our question here is from some of Dr. Jeffress's past uh, proclamations, we question whether he is really a righteous person that he's referring to because he's publicly come out and called for the killing of the leader, Kim, of North Korea. And he's used the Bible to justify this, which it seems kind of contradictory to what he's saying about the importance of prayer. And so, yes, we do need prayer by righteous people. And so this is a very telling incident where evangelicals have basically ignored the killing that the United States is doing through our serial wars. And so they paid lip service to this concept of prayer, praying for the government. It says here that, quote, we obviously need to advocate for just laws, vote for ethical politicians who will uphold the Constitution, defends the right of the defend the rights of the preborn and guard our families against moral corruption, among other things. But to do these things without asking God to attend to our work is foolish because it cuts us off from the greatest power in the universe. And that certainly is a, a true statement there. But his previous actions bring this all into question. What's actually going on here? Tom, I might add that I have thought back and 
I appreciate the church where I attend, and some of the people there even appreciate me. Sort of an increasing number might appreciate me a little bit, but I don't know how well they understand us, you and me. I do know, however, that I have thought back as best I can over the prayers that I've heard rendered in the last four years, and I cannot think of a single prayer that I heard from the pulpit of my own church, or even in a Sunday school class, where someone outright prayed for world peace, for an end of conflict, for an end of killing, for end of the threatened wars that are now being thrust upon us every day, and we could all name the places before the evening's over, we probably will. We can all think of who is being promoted for our next series of wars. And in my church, again, I don't recall a single prayer where anyone stood up and rendered a prayer for world peace or the end of conflict. Have you heard such a prayer in your church? No, not really. It's generally just a, a general type of thing. And we evangelicals typically are saying, God bless America. And it should be, America should be blessing God. And we're not doing a very good job of it. We want all the benefits here, but we are causing these wars against countries like Iraq, for example. We recall during the 90s, during the embargo against Iraq, there were something like 500,000 Iraqi children that died because of these embargoes. In fact, the Secretary of the State at the time, Madeleine Albright, was interviewed on TV and they asked about the deaths of these 500,000 children. Was it worth it? And she said it was. Now, I don't think she's a professing Christian by any stretch, but nobody has, as far as I know, has actually said anything about these deaths of innocent people. The evangelicals typically are against abortion. So they are against killing, but we don't see any objection to these serial wars. It seems to be a very inconsistent position. They seem to be more interested in patriotism. Well, I find it interesting of, of uh, those here on the conference call tonight, I'm probably the only one at a would not be considered an evangelical church. And yes, we do pray for world peace and that to speak out against the wars. So that's something I can say, yes, I have heard prayers in, in that regard. Tom, when you brought up Jeffers talking about uh, James chapter 5, it's interesting, I just did a Bible study uh, last week on the uh, last part of chapter 2 of James, talking about faith and works. And one comment that I made, I quoted from a Bible teacher I had years ago when I attended a, actually it was an Assembly of God um, a Bible, Bible training program and a Christian education program. And I love this one leader said, he defined faith this way. Faith is the unshakable confidence. Faith is the unshakable confidence in the character of God. And what's implicit in that definition of faith is having an accurate understanding of who God is and what his character is. Unfortunately, for us, we don't have to wonder or worry what that looks like because we have Jesus as the fullness of the Godhead. It dwells in Jesus, and we have his example as the firstborn of many brethren. 
And this notion, and Chuck, I don't know where this came into the church, this whole idea of raise your hand, say yes at the right spot, you've now got eternal life, and you can just go on and you are saved. The big emphasis is save, 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 which the way I read my scriptures, it says you're to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And if you're going to witness about something, you have to experience, you have to see it, you have to, if you're going to be a witness, something has to have happened. And it's not just raising a hand at a meeting and say, you know, yes, I want to be in a, on this gravy train. And so it really uh, bothered me that, that Jeffress was using James. And when James is so clear about there has to be works that line up with this faith. And when you look to Jesus, there is no warring spirit. There is no destroying your enemies before they destroy you. Uh, you know, like the, I just came across a book. It's called Rise and Kill First. It's about the Mossad and how they have any perceived threat, and they go right after the preemptive strike. And that's what Jeffress was talking about, this preemptive assassination of Kim. And that's what Bush did, this preemptive violence against Iraq. It's this whole notion that is so ungodly, unchristlike. And so when you do talk about the secret message of Jesus, I say, well, it's only secret in evangelical churches because they're so wrapped around the axle with this Israel first thing. They can't see the teachings and the message of the one that they're supposed to follow. Great. However, I will tell you that it's not entirely the evangelicals because what's happened is the influence has trickled on through to where it does affect some mainline churches, and I happen to go to a mainline church. It's not the only one that I've been to that does not take time out to recognize, acknowledge, and pray for peace. So I would say that the evangelicals, through their influence, have actually caused the mainline churches to, in a lot of cases, knuckle under and uh, simply take the easy route out. Uh, just don't bother to discuss war. Then you don't have to bother to discuss the causes. Then you don't have to bother to discuss the consequences. Then you don't have to bother to to see the dead and the blood. And -hmm. you don't have to think about the aftermath and what the next war will be. And you certainly don't have to stop and sit down and ask yourself, why are our leaders dragging us in one conflict after another? Why do they have publicly three or four right on the agenda future candidates for war right now as we speak. And that, I think, is common not only to the evangelicals, but when I say evangelicals, I mean evangelical dispensationalists who we have come to call Christian Zionists, but also that this influence has trickled down into the mainline. Mr. McLaren is a member of the mainline. Well, it's interesting, Chuck and Craig, that uh, just a few days ago, the National Day of Prayer was observed, and that was initiated in 1952 by Congress, and every year the president uh, signs a proclamation. And so uh, it has become an event that is basically controlled by evangelicals. And another example uh, that I'd like to offer the 2017 chairperson of the National Day of Prayer Task Force is Ann Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter. 
And she, in an example, and we'll have a link in a tribute to my wife, but I'll briefly just give a little explanation. Ingram Watts was in Jerusalem in 2014 while there was a war by Israel on Gaza where 500 children were killed, over 2,000 people were killed, and 75% were civilians. And she was urging people to not worry about the war because they were told by the Israeli government everything was safe and that not to cancel the tours. She was, along with Kay Arthur of Precepts Ministry, showing very much callousness to what is going on. And so... Tom, let me interrupt to ask you a question right here and now in the middle. How much of the National Day of Prayers prayer time was spent praying for peace all over the world among the warring places? I can't say that because at our, my church, uh, actually a friend of mine was doing some studying on this. He had gone to the service last year uh, on the day of national prayer, and there were about 1,500 people in attendance. It was at 7 o'clock at night, and uh, he said it was very inspirational, and I don't know what particularly uh, transpired then, but he he asked me to go this year. It was being held from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and he asked me to go take a snapshot. And so I went between the uh, noon and 1 o'clock hour, and it turns out there were only seven people at one time, and during that whole hour, not more than 12 people showed up. There was no pastor, so it was just people praying individually so i i don't know what they were praying so there was no leading in in this particular incident so there were other obviously events around the world so i can't speak to those but it is curious that the day before the the national day of prayer this same dr robert jeffress was with other evangelical christians uh, in washington preparing for the re-election campaign for Donald Trump in 2020. So this is all kind of interesting. It sort of appears to be that we get lip service on the importance of prayer, but they forget these very important things like peace. That vein, Tom, let me respond with something that we can say for absolute certain. We are not saying in this program that there's any question that the leaders of the current political party that dominate the White House are not leading and dragging us into war every day. But we don't expect them to pray against war. We expect the churches to be out there praying against war and even maybe taking attacks against it. I just received a flyer in my post office box. I have to confess I'm registered as a Republican. So I received this letter of six pages long from the Republican National Committee in Washington, D.C. And in it, it has uh, all kinds of questions and answers that it asked me. And these are all very leading questions. They all lead me in the direction of whoever wrote this document for the Republican National Committee. And on the subject of war, it couldn't be more clear. This is a question that it's asking me as a voter to fill in. I want you to consider the leading nature of this question. 
do you support rebuilding our nation's military? And I'll stop right there. Mm-hmm. Did you know our military needs rebuilding? I thought we had a thousand military bases all over the world. I thought we had the most powerful military anywhere. Do you support rebuilding our nation's military by expanding our military investment? Number two, which of the following do you think would have the most impact on America's foreign policy in the next five years? And there are about eight items. I'll read you four of them. Number two, the denuclearization of North Korea. Now, by denuclearization, this implies force, and uh, it is a... Obviously, a leading step toward war is when you say you're going to denuclearize somebody. That means you're going to take their weapons away. Number three, Iran's development of nuclear weapons. Here the implication is that we have a nuclear threat in Iran. And then the next one, the growing military and economic power of China. So now we have China as a growing military and economic power. Then that these the, the people that wrote this are asking us to join them in the belief that China is a world threat to us militarily. And then finally, the growing influence and power of Russia. So here's laid out in front of us the war agenda for the next coming decade or two. Uh, North Korea, Iran, China, and Russia. And then the rest of this goes on pretty much in the same vein, uh, leading one to believe that we are in a posture of war preparation right now and trying to rebuild our military so that they're able to defend us. This is the kind of thing that's promoted from the parties. And I'm not just saying one party. I'm sure that we would get something similar if we had a Democrat president. But my question, of course, is how can we help but have a warring society when we have this promotion going on It's teaching us that we're supposed to be prepared for war at any time and at any moment. And then the obvious question that this leads back to for We Hold These Truths is, why have we not been able to get our churches to stand up and say, we've killed enough people. God is not for war. Jesus would not walk us into battle. Why is it that we are preparing ourselves for more war? We know, of course, within We Hold These Truths, but the reasons are economic. They don't have anything to do with killing people. They have to do with making our economy function by generating, by generating artificial wealth that's invested in war machinery and takes people off the street and tends to keep the economy boiling. At the root of all this, we have written many times that all of this is really about economics and that our leaders probably really don't even care who they kill as long as it makes the economy roll. And, of course, this is one of the lessons that we are trying to teach our readers is that every war movement has to be looked upon with skepticism to see whether this is just an economic promotion or whether there actually is an enemy threat out there that we're having to prepare for. I agree, of course, with this author and what he's tried to say. As I see it, this so-called secret message and the purpose of Jesus' life was to teach and exemplify love in all its many forms and manifestations. I agree that to focus merely on getting oneself into heaven is an error. 
And as you gentlemen certainly know, nothing is more important, and Jesus certainly taught us that nothing is more important than how we reach out and care about and care for one another. But do not let us hurt one another, mm-hmm. whether in the womb or out of the womb, Christians, you know. Like one of you said, most of these Christians do stand for pro-life as far as the baby goes. But on the other side of the world where our tax money is being used to manufacture oh, unbelievable amounts of bombs and, and bullets, they don't even yeah. think that that possibly could be wrong. Coming off what you said about the reward and so forth, passage that gets really twisted by most churches is out of First Corinthians 3, verses 10 on, where Paul says, According to the grace God has given me, like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay the foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's works will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work has been built on the foundation, survives, he shall receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though himself will be saved, but only through fire. And so many times that people say, well, wood, hay, and stubble, that's just sin in my life. Well, that's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about the teachings. How faithful are you to the teachings of Jesus? I firmly believe that a lot of our brothers and sisters as Christian Zionists, I was one have a love for God, but really I had a lot of wood, hay, and stubble in that belief system because I didn't understand the nature of who Jesus is and what his message to the world is. And I think Chuck McLaren is kind of tapping into that. It's like, let's get our minds around who Jesus is, what the message is, and build on that foundation. I think this passage in 1 Corinthians 3 goes along with that. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1.